Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant Podcast. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. We are going through the Sermon on the Mount. If you're new to us, you should know that I'm unpacking Jesus's comments about his relationship with the law from the Sermon on the Mount. And so the title of this podcast is The Law Versus Jesus, Part 4. Jesus didn't say that he had come to question or undermine the law, but to fulfill it. So what does that mean? Well, I'll try to unpack it. Uh, in my soon-to-be-published novel, The Rabboni. It's a novel about Matthew and a team of missionaries to Ethiopia some 10 years after he wrote his gospel. He's unpacking and answering questions particularly related to the Sermon on the Mount. So what did Jesus mean with this whole uh, paragraph on he didn't come to undermine the law but to fulfill it? How was it understood by the regular folks on that hillside in Galilee, by the Pharisees and Sadducees? And what does it mean to be more righteous than the Pharisees, right? They were the professionals. We'll tell you. In the last podcast, we began with Reuben, a former member of the Sanhedrin, now a Jesus follower, and on Matthew's missionary team in Aksum, Ethiopia. He's going to be explaining to Jewish leaders uh, as a Jew at a synagogue in Ethiopia how they should process righteousness, right? That's the stuff that ultimately you need to have God's favor, Where does this righteousness come from? How do you get it? Uh, What was Jesus's role in all of that? And by the way, by the time uh, Reuben is speaking, the temple has been destroyed by the Romans, raised to the ground, right? Things get complicated. So there are no more offerings for the Jews, no more Day of Atonement, which for the Sadducees was how uh, righteousness took place. You'll hear more. So Reuben is going to be speaking about the five paths to righteousness available to the Jew. And he's spoken already about the first one, the Biryanim, the Zealots. The Zealots thought that to some degree or another, God would take into account fervor if Israel set themselves free from the oppression of pagan Rome. I mean, that's kind of the philosophy. Inherently, their efforts would bring the Messiah, perhaps, and it failed. Rome destroyed the Zealots. So we pick up with Reuben speaking about the second path to gaining, possibly gaining righteousness in favor of God per the Torah, the path of the Sadducees. But before we plunge in, many of you already know that the Gospel Rant is now partnering with Life Audio with this podcast. So that means a few changes, not too many, but here's one. We're going to take a break to hear from a sponsor. I mean, that's right, a sponsor. And when we come back, we will get into the Sermon on the Mount. Stick around. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. 
So welcome back, and uh, we're going to get right into it. Here's Reuben again. The second path would be the Sadducees, the priestly party. This institution was ordained by Elohim himself in the Torah. They, to their credit, fiercely held to the written text as best as humanly possible, every jot and tittle. Their philosophy of how Israel can propitiate the wrath of Elohim against sin and idolatry involved the prescribed offerings at the temple, particularly on Yom Kippur, our Day of Atonement. All of Israel would gather with soiled hands, do the just wrath of Elohim, and the high priest would make a substitutionary offering for all. Two goats, one slaughtered to pay for sins and one to be karat, cut off from fellowship with Elohim in our place, so that we could be his sons and daughters in good standing again. Amen? The audience responded with a bold amen. And setting aside the tragic, well-known corruption at the highest levels of the Sadducees and the priesthood, nevertheless, they were faithful in the sacrificial offering for Israel. And I know that so many of you here in Aksum have family that served in the temple cult, who tragically perished when Rome destroyed the temple, and I am so sorry for your loss. He looked intentionally around the room again until he caught the eye of one person in particular. I also know that some of you were faithful priest who served at the temple in Alexandria. He nodded in sincere deference. But that too has been shut down by Rome. We Jews who embrace the Torah must also embrace the temple and the sacrifices. All Jews, even you who are newly circumcised, have benefited from the temple and its sacrifices. And I'm going to come back to that. But allow me to make a few points first. Reuben said, pausing as he choked down his emotions and tears, He looked down at the dirt, wiped his sleeves over his swollen eyes to deal with the tears that began to flow. In a a few moments of struggle, he began again. First, this is the dirty little secret. Though the temple sacrifices are prescribed by Elohim in the Torah, they did not remove our shame and guilt. I can see now that they were never meant to. What are we to say? Ever since the return of so many Jews from exile, ever since the temple and altar had been rebuilt and the cult reestablished, the daily and annual sacrifices continued. The priests faithfully did all that was written, and yet the Holy of Holies remained vacated, empty, void of the Shekinah glory of Elohim. He paused again. Clearly, the audience was shocked at this revelation. You could hear multiple side conversations reverberating all over the room. Some people were shocked, others indignant. Everyone was listening to this disquieting news. He waved his hands over the crowd to get their attention again. Reuben knew this would be controversial, yet he knew that it would all become clear. Please, brothers and sisters, let me finish. For those of us in the know, though we elected to not make it public, For many reasons, of course, the Holy of Holies was empty and has been for a long time. When Moses' tabernacle was completed, the Shekinah glory of Elohim came upon it, as was witnessed by all who participated in the worship. The same was observed when King Solomon completed his temple, but nothing of the sort was witnessed when the second temple was completed. There was no ark, no seraphim. In fact, Many believe that the Ark of the Covenant is somewhere here in Oxum. Isn't that correct? A few quietly nodded in agreement. Reuben took note of those who did. He would pursue that more later. So how was it dealt with? 
the decision was made long ago that the high priest was to still follow the Torahic prescription for all the offerings as if the presence of Elohim were indeed there. I understand their dilemma. There were no prescriptions in the Torah about what to do if Elohim's glory ever departed. So they continued to do what they were told. Those sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year did not make perfect those who drew near to worship. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins and the resulting guilt, shame, and sense of isolation from Elohim. Many of you with Sadducean roots would agree with me, I think. If you were to ask a priest, what must be done so that I would enter the kingdom of Elohim, or that I would inherit the kingdom, or that I would know the favor of Elohim, your answer would be related to the faithful participation in the temple. But what if there is no temple? The Sadducees suffered from their lack of answers for the crisis posed by the destruction of the temple. They had no answers that satisfied the survivors and offer no clear direction and no promise of justice or consolation in the world to come. They had denied the authority of the oral tradition and now had lost the authority of the temple. The people lost trust in them. And that's my second point. What does any Jew do now in order to find propitiation for his or her sins against Elohim when the temple no longer exists. There is no place that one can go to repent and confess their sins, to find atonement. No official mikvah baths, no sacrifice, no priest, corrupt or not, no day of atonement. Never again will we hear the high priest say, it is finished. I have had these discussions with the highest levels of the Sadducees. They had little theology of the afterlife. Their whole narrow focus was on the temple and the temple cult. And now there is nothing. The Romans were brutal, thorough in their destruction of the temple, but also obliterating the entire priesthood. Very few survived. If any, those who did either joined Rabban Zakai at Yavna or fled the land before the destruction or, like the zealots, were sold as slaves. For all practical purposes, there is no more Sadducean party, not in any official capacity. Their lands and wealth have been confiscated, the temple implements destroyed or melted down. For you who have embraced such teaching, again, I'm sorry for your loss. Similar fate was allotted to the many monastic sects of separatists, our third possible path to Elohim. Some have referred to them as the Essenes. They also have been either slaughtered or fled for their lives. These well-meaning Jewish brothers or sisters were deeply concerned about the politicization and corruption of the temple hierarchy. Frankly, they really wanted to be found pure at heart when Elohim and his kingdom returned. They covenanted with the leaders of these wilderness communes and committed to meticulous observance of rules for ritual purity and through their efforts to be found worthy of Elohim's approval. They separated from their former communities in order to maintain that ritual purity. In their mind, Elohim would see their efforts to be pure and reward them with eternity in paradise. In fact, the men of one such commune, Qumran, were buried facing east so that when the Messiah came in the clouds and their bodies resurrected, they would be the first to see his glory. It's a morality tale of sorts, well-meaning and yet tragic. I am told by a very credible source that their obsession for purity led to the death of many in the Qumran community. In order to create a holy and pure environment, the men were required to go outside the commune to defecate. 
As they re-entered the city, they were to cleanse themselves from their impurity by bathing in a pool at the gate. Then someone noticed that many were suffering fevers and convulsions and other stomach afflictions. Many perished in the excruciating pain. It turned out that the purifying pool was spreading uncleanness. All their careful efforts at remaining ritually clean was, ironically, causing a deep fouling. But haven't we seen that all too often? Our human efforts at purity lead to death. Such are the well-meaning plans of humanity. Alas, now the Essenes are gone too. He paused and looked around the room in silence. Their communities are wastelands, not from the hand of Elohim, but of man. I have walked down the streets of Qumran. There is nothing left. May Elohim eventually raise them up. Well, we're going to take a break for our sponsors again, very short, and get back to Reuben's thoughts about a fourth path to God's favor, to inherit the kingdom of God, to feel God's face shining upon Israel, right? And this is all per Torah. See you in a moment. Okay, welcome back. Let's get right back into Reuben. Let me say some things about the fourth path to God's favor, my people, the Pharisees. As I said before the final months, the Pharisees had severely splintered into several disparate camps. I'm not proud of that. Truth told, we had become quite politicized, not our finest hour. There was the pro-war camp, those Pharisees who believed that we must fight to free ourselves from the restraints and cruelties of the Romans. They aligned themselves with Abiranim. The school of Shammai largely went this direction, but also many in the Sanhedrin and the school of Hillel, including the Nasi Simeon ben Gamliel. I think that many of these Pharisees believed that Rome was not of a mind to just defeat the zealots, but was going to send a fearful message to the rest of their empire by decimating all Judaism, perhaps even raising the temple and exiling the population to the ends of the earth like the pagan Babylonians before them. In this, they were correct. Judaism's only chance, they concluded wrongly, was to join forces with the zealots and arm for battle. And you know the story. They too were annihilated alongside the zealots, a bloodbath to be sure. I was not there, but the stories that I heard from eyewitnesses are shocking. The school of Shammai is gone. The pro-war Pharisees are gone. Before this time, Phariseeism had always known two complementary branches, the precise house of Shammai, known to some of you here in this very room, and the moderate, more progressive house of Hillel. But that changed in a moment of time. All that remains are those few sages of the school of Hillel that followed Zakai and were allowed free passage to Yavna by Emperor Vespasian. Since that time, only a decade ago now, the survivors of the school of Hillel are reshaping Judaism in the land as well as in the diaspora. Yohanan ben Zakkai in Yavna has assumed the liturgical authority formerly vested in the temple priest to determine the proper calendar. He also now exercises judicial and legal authority earlier held by the Sanhedrin. All of this is with Rome's approval. Before, Rome tried to rule the people through the king, then through a Roman prelate, and even the Sanhedrin. Now, they are satisfied to allow limited rulership by the Hillel Rabbinic School at Yavna. 
While some Jewish leaders complain there is nothing that can be done, this is a new era for our people. The rabbinic school in Yavna, under the remarkable leadership and vision of Zakai, has become the legitimate successor and heir to the old Sanhedrin's authority in post-Temple Judaism. Not long ago, the Pharisees had been a single sectarian group among competing parties. Now they are constituted as the sole definers of Judaism. Now they alone determine how the Torah and oral traditions are to be interpreted and applied to Jews in Judea and in the diaspora. It's now customary to speak of rabbinic Judaism, as we largely have cast off the soiled moniker Pharisaism. So be it. The future of Judaism is resurrected not from war, or the temple, or even the Pharisee schools of Hillel and Shammai. The theological future is guided by official rabbinical school of those largely trained in Yavna by Zakai. If you have not heard, Rabban Zakai retired not long ago and joined his ancestors shortly afterwards. His legacy at Yavna was then reconstituted as a more formal Sanhedrin under the leadership of Rabban Gamaliel II. But Judaism has dramatically changed. His influence will go on for a long time. Personally, I applaud my master Zakai's emphasis on chesed, compassion towards others, He taught that if one wants to love their neighbor in this post-Temple Judaism, the new offering must be on the streets and in the marketplaces of the world. Amen. But here is the serious core fault of Zakai's alterations. He says that we Jews must now ramp up our deeds of compassion, prayer, and Torah study to such high levels as to rival the rites and sacrifices formerly done at the temple. May God forbid... They can't replace Torah-prescribed sacrifices or earn righteousness or favor from Elohim's hands. I was among the disciples of Zakai who left Jerusalem along with him. It was one of the hardest decisions I ever made, and I made it on theological grounds. Our Elohim is a God primarily of peace, and I still have memories of the many friends and family who condemned us as cowards and traitors, Roman sympathizers. I have a scar on my shoulder— from a brick thrown by someone in the streets as we exited the doomed city, protected by a cohort of Roman soldiers. It was a painful walk of shame that I will never forget. I bear the scar to this day. Rabbi Tarfon graciously asked Reuben a question, maybe the only right question at this point in Reuben's narrative. Were you right? Did you do the right and Elohim-honoring thing? What are we to learn from this tragedy? Reuben paused, took a breath as if stalling to get his emotions at rest and his thoughts together. This was so personal for Reuben, and this was his question as well. Bless you, Rabbi. You are a man of great wisdom. That is the right question. Not so much did I and those other Pharisees do the right thing, but what are we to learn from this crisis of faith? A month or so later, my teacher, Rabban Zakai, blessed be he, walked through the ruins of the temple with some students. I was there. When he saw that the temple was destroyed and the haikal burnt, he stood and rent his garments, took off his tefillin, and sat weeping, as did we pupils with him. One of my colleagues, Rabbi Joshua, said to the teacher, Woe is us that this place has been destroyed, the place where atonement was made for the sins of Israel. And that's the question, for without the temple practices, no one would ever enter the world that was to come. 
Rabban Zakai paused for a moment, sadly shook his head, and said, No, my son, do you not know that we have a means of making atonement that is like it? And what is it? It is deeds of love, as it is said, for I desire kindness and not sacrifice. These acts now, per Zakai and today's rabbinical Judaism, have fundamentally replaced the sacrifice and the many rites of the temple. It is now taught, just as the sin and guilt offerings made atonement for Israel in the past, so now charity and kindness will make atonement for the nations of the world. Rabbinical Judaism now teaches that the path to the presence of the one Elohim is no longer a function of the temple, and the Torahic prescribed cult, but through a combination of acts of kindness and prayer and ongoing study and application of Torah, as it is written in the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Again, many side comments erupted throughout the common room. This was a shocking and provocative, massive cultural change for the Jews. It would take time to digest it all. Reuben's goal was to make some sense of it all. Please, let me continue. Back to my train of thought. Of the five proposed Jewish ways to enter the favor of Elohim, three have been eradicated from our world, granted glory only in stories and history books. That is, those paths proposed by the Zealots, the Essenes, and the Sadducees. The fourth proposed path, Phariseeism, has been rebirthed and renamed as the new sole guide for Jewish theology in this new era of rabbinic scholarship. I haven't even mentioned the new emphasis on the deeper mystical teachings of Zakai, where Torah students in their studies long to explore the mysteries of creation and might find the path to pass from earth with its violence and selfishness through the seven heavens to where the Holy One sits enthroned, like Ezekiel's vision of the heavenly chariot. But that is beyond our topic for this evening. There was a knowing chuckle in the rooms. This new teaching of mysticism was very appealing in some quarters. Many of those who had fled Alexandria when the Romans scuttled the temple there are very aware of that movement. And let me say this about Rabban Sakai's new thought that the temple sacrifice has been satisfactorily replaced by Torah study and prayer. I'm told by one who was at his deathbed just before we came on this mission trip. He told me that near the end, Rabbi Zakai began to weep profusely. The disciples asked the master why he wept, and this is what he said. If I were being taken today before a human king who is here today and tomorrow in the grave, whose anger, if he is angry with me, does not last forever, who, if he imprisons me, does not imprison me forever, and who, if he puts me to death, does not put me to everlasting death, and whom I can persuade with words and bribe with money— Even so, I would weep. Now that I'm being taken before the supreme king of kings, who lives and endures forever and ever, whose anger is an everlasting anger, who, if he imprisons me, imprisons me forever, who, if he puts me to death, puts me to death forever, and whom I cannot persuade with words or bribe with money, nay more, when there are two ways before me, one leading to paradise and the other to Gehenna, and I do not know by which I shall be taken. Shall I not weep? Look, if the greatest teacher in Phariseeism and in its replacement rabbinic scholarship cannot be confident that he will be with the Lord for all eternity, what is there for us? For we who cannot show such chesed and sacrifices, such prayers and compassion, who bring no such record of faithful Torah study. This fourth 
Jewish path has little to offer to us, brothers and sisters. It's familiar, to be sure, but I said there were five Jewish paths, yes? Well, we're going to pick it up there next time. I hope that you're enjoying the Rabboni. If so, let some people know. Some folks prefer narrative to understand. Others prefer theology. I like them both. The next podcast we'll pick up here. Reuben is talking about the fifth path to favor with God according to the Torah. And if you like it, let me know. Bill at gospel-app.com. If you want to know when we actually will publish the Rabboni novel, email me again, bill at gospel-app.com, and we'll let you know how. We'll see you next time on the Gospel Rant Podcast. Take heart, child of God. This is Chris Christensen, and back in 2006, I started a simple project, a project to try and introduce more people to the Bible through Bible study called the Bible Study Podcast. It's a simple name and a simple idea. Each week, every week, we study one chapter of the Bible, talk about what it says and what that might mean for us today. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for the Bible Study Podcast on your favorite podcast app.